So, um, the title of this message today is Down with Man's Kingdom. Deconstructing, identifying, deconstructing, and destroying secular humanism in America. All right? So that's what we're going to do today. We have 70 minutes to do it, and by the time I'm done, it's gone. It's gone. No more secular humanism. By a show of hands, who knows what secular humanism is? That's so awesome. Most of the time, it's 20% of the church. It's like, feel right at home. Love this being my home church. You guys are, and gals are equipped to defend the faith and restore righteousness in this nation. If you direct your attention to the, uh, to the slide, uh, this is part of uh, a new project uh, that myself and several members of this church are undertaking. It's called the We Are Watchmen movement. We Are Watchmen. Okay, and it's based off a litany of scriptures, uh, Ezekiel three seventeen. We identify as God's eyes and God's voice to what's going on in our nation today. We identify as God's eyes and God's voice to what's going on in the nation today. And we unapologetically speak what we believe God's message is. Without cutting any pieces out, without being afraid of any areas that are designated things like politics, which only means rulership. We're going to get into that. Okay? Imagine the kingdom of God people being afraid to speak on rulership. That's a little bit weird. But part of the We Are Watchmen movement is Watchmen Apologetics Resources. And who knows what apologetics is? Who knows what the... What, what, okay. It comes from 1 Peter 3.15. The word apologetics is the word defense. It's to make a defense. We are ordered as Christians to make a defense for the hope that is inside us, for the, for the worldview of Christian theism that has been entrusted to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Okay? There was a time in our nation, not that long ago, when Christian theism was the default worldview. It was the way of looking at the world that all the intellectual elites at least gave homage to. You, you couldn't, for example, you couldn't go through law, law school without studying Blackstone's commentaries. And Blackstone uh, wrote extensively on English common law and gave credit to God as the source of natural and special revelation, and that, that being the basis of our law in this country. Now, there was a shift that happened, and we're going to go over that shift, to where now the de facto worldview is called secular humanism. It is the worldview where man is at the center, where there is no God, or if there is a God, he's not important to be an absolute God, and your God is good as the next God. But ultimately, God is man and man's wishes. And whatever man decides to do, as long as he has enough power to do it, it can get done. And utopia can be built on earth because, after all, we're just a collection of molecules formed by time and chance. Random mutation and natural selection. And boom, here we are. And why does it matter? And believe it or not, that is the worldview that we face today. So Watchmen Apologetics Resources is about deconstructing that worldview. It's no longer good enough to say because the Bible says. It used to be. It's no longer good enough to say 
Because God is God and God said, and therefore it is. In this nation, they'll brazenly tell you, well, there is no God. Prove to me that there's a God. And so Watchman Apologetics Resources is here to definitely give you a case for the existence of the Christian God. And so uh, without taking too much time on this, our method, um, and if you go to the uh, website, wearewatchman.org, wearewatchman.org, in the coming weeks, you'll you'll see this unfold. But it's an outside in approach. It's, it's something called classical apologetics. This is what some of the earliest Christian apologists did. And obviously the arguments that we have today are a little bit more refined. But you would definitely prove God from the outside without looking at the Bible and then go to the inside looking at the Bible. So what's very important are the three main theistic arguments. The cosmological argument, the teleological argument, and the moral law argument. The moral law argument we're going to be focusing on today as part of the message. And you wonder why the worship team only played three songs. <laughs> um, so cosmological argument, argument from the beginning of the universe for a creator. The teleological argument, argument from the design of the universe that there's a creator. And you get specific within these arguments like, well, what kind of creator? Could an impersonal creator like the creator of Hinduism purpose to create something that has a lot of features of design in it. Could wind do that? I would, I would argue no. And, and then the moral argument, the argument from the existence of this sense of right and wrong that we have, our conscience. We know certain things are absolutely right and absolutely wrong. Even if two million people decided that what the Nazis did was right, I know for a fact that it's wrong. Okay, so the moral law argument. Then once you establish that, notice you don't need the Bible to do that. So if we have students in our public schools... If we had youth leaders throughout this country that were teaching this to their students and they were going into the public schools without bringing a Bible, without bringing any Christian literature, but just saying, okay, we'll take you from Big Bang cosmology, matter, energy, space, and time from nothing. Forget about how long ago it happened and all that for now. From nothing. How do you reconcile that with the law of causality? We need 15-year-olds in public schools that can say that. If anything with a beginning in time needs a beginner and the universe had a beginning in time, then the universe needs a beginner. All right? So you can take a crazy theory like those out there uh, propagated by Stephen Hawking uh, and your astrophysicists that have wrapped their brain in 70 million pretzels to try to figure out a way that gravity could be the first cause. Or you could submit... So what's that rule pastor says? The main rule of the universe, there is a God and I'm not him. <laughs> or yeah, And then the teleological argument. And so we're, you, you have, you, if we had kids in high school, in public schools, in these areas, if we felt confident that we could send them into those areas and they could make these arguments outside of any kind of literature, outside of having a Bible thump, outside of whatever, um, outside of having to bring a book of fulfilled prophecies or any of that kind of stuff, we would, we would powerfully, because we would affect the schools from the, from the grassroots up. Um, and, and then after the natural revelation, after the three main theistic arguments are established, you go into the special revelation. You can go into things like fulfilled prophecy. Last week I spoke on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a unique combination of the two. You can prove it without the Bible, but it helps if you have it. And, and so 
that's Watchman Apologetics Resources, is we give the resources. We're building something to be able to give resources so that this worldview, and it's not just for kids in public schools, it's for kids in junior colleges, it's for adults, anywhere in the public square where you can use what the founders used to establish our nation, natural law, God's evidence in the created order, in your conscious, in your metaphysical, what really makes you you, not your brain, what really makes you you, you can go out into the public square and get it done. And get it done. And make a case. And make a case that's, that has people saying, you know what? And you, it, it, they might not fall to their knees and, and, and confess Christ immediately, but let me tell you something. If we had, what is it, 80, 80 million evangelical Christians in the United States today? Imagine if 10 million of them could do this. Amen. And imagine if they would do it. Looking for opportunities. You know, the thing about the Holy Spirit is you don't have to have a special kind of degree or you don't have to be a perfect individual. You just got to present yourself. Mm-hmm. And so we... Uh, um, we're building this, and hopefully we're going to be able to uh, empower and equip uh, a generation of fierce warriors in the intellect for the Christian faith. We've lost some of the intellect in the church, but we're beginning to regain it. We are beginning to regain it. There are signs, there are seeds, and there is a lot of hope for us as a, as a body of Christ to be able to actually use the intellect that God has given us to reestablish the fact the Christian theism is the worldview that we should be adhering to as a nation. And what is a nation but a collection of individuals united together by a societal bond? So we can, we, can, we can do this, and it has to be from the bottom up. But the challenges that we're facing today are huge. They're huge. And it's going to take more than just a little bit of book work to get it done. What we're looking at today with the de facto worldview of the United States of America being secular humanism is worse than the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. It's worse. It's worse. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who knows who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is? Okay, cool. Fast forward. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor in, in Germany, sacrificed everything that he had and everything that he one of the most brilliant theologians of the past century he could have been chancellor of any school he wanted to be chancellor of if only he would sprinkle a little incense in the altar of hitler if only he would sign a few documents if only he wouldn't preach a certain way if only he would confess that the nazis he didn't have to say they were christians if only he would confess that what they were doing was an anti-Christian. It would have been okay. And so, no, he wouldn't do that. And not only did he die in a concentration camp, not only did he die in a concentration camp by being hanged by the neck, okay? Not only that, but he gave up everything that he possibly could have hoped for in his life to stand against the tyranny that was coming against the Nazis. He gave up everything that he had, not just his physical life, but everything else to make a witness. His words were specifically, in, in, in the vein um, of Edmund Burke, his words were specifically um, that 
not doing anything in the face of evil. Not doing anything in the face of evil is evil itself. And six million Jews died in the Holocaust. Six million. I'm going to tell you a little, little story. And, and, we, and we, as a lot of churches in America, especially you know, looking over you know, what was going on, say, how, how, could, how, could the, how could these German Christians sit in their churches and, and sing hymns while the boxcars were going by with wailing Jews uh, on their way to the concentration camps? How could they do that? I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. I would be out there in those boxcars. I'd be out there doing whatever I had to do to stand for righteousness. Well, I'll tell you a little story. Oh, there we go. Okay. Quote from Ronald Reagan. Our nationwide policy of abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy was neither voted for by our people nor enacted by our legislatures. Not a single state, legislators, sorry, not a single state had unrestricted abortion before the Supreme Court decreed it national policy in 1973. It's amazing the kind of things that activist justices can find in the Constitution. It was there all along. It was there all along. You want to know how that happened? How could a nation dedicated to Christian principles founded on natural law, scripture, get to a place where something like abortion is the law of the land in all 50 states? How could, it, how, how could a nation get to that point? Well, 1961, an activist, and let me, okay, there's, there's two terms here. To describe Supreme Court justices or any kind of, you know, judge or lawyer in America, there, there's, there's two ways of looking at the Constitution. There, there's an activist and then there's originalist. An activist is someone who looks at the Constitution as something that's kind of living and breathing and you can do whatever you want with it so long as you know what you're doing, what's right in your heart. Okay? An originalist is someone who takes the original words of the Constitution okay, and tries to figure out what the authors meant with the words they used and to apply that faithfully. And let me tell you something. That's the only thing that any, any court in America should be doing when it comes to the law of our land, which is the Constitution of the United States, okay, and the Declaration. So in 1961, an activist Supreme Court justice named John Marshall Harlan argues for a constitutional right to privacy in a case called Poe versus Ullman. And you can imagine... Doesn't seem like much. All it is is a little case in Connecticut involving the use of contraceptives between a married couple. Yeah, what, what kind of archaic law would, would allow that to happen? What, what, what kind of state could ban the, a husband and a wife from using contraceptives? What kind of state could do that? Okay, so the whole case had no standing whatsoever. There was no actual, the, 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 uh, the uh, people who brought the case had no standing to bring the case, but the only reason the case was brought to begin with was so John Marshall Harlan could write in his dissenting opinion, okay, the fact that there should be a constitutional right to privacy. It's in his dissenting opinion, okay? He got the idea from Melvin Wolf, an ACLU lawyer, who claims credit for giving Harlan the strategy. See, all they need, all the way the courts operate these days is all they need to do is kind of weasel a word in here, an opinion in, in here, and they, then they'll use it as precedent for later things. You think this is important as Christians or not? 
or should I just go, go further? Okay, because this, this is how it works. All right, this is how it works. So Melvin Wolf and ACLU, isn't that, isn't that a horrible, American Civil Liberties, unbelievable. You know, wow, anti, everything is kind of like, uh, it's, it's like Orwell. Yeah, everything is turned around on itself. Um, anyway, he claims, uh, uh, Melvin Wolf claims credit for giving Harlan the strategy to, adore, uh, to adopt this, this approach of just kind of weaseling in that opinion because the court doesn't like to break that new ground. So after Poe was decided, they waited about a couple years in 1965, brought another case, and this case won. And the Connecticut law was overturned. Justice William Brennan, William O. Brennan, that's correct, uh, struck down the Connecticut law as the deciding vote on the Supreme Court. And he said, in his opinion, that specific guarantees in the Bill of Rights have penumbras formed by emanations from those guarantees that give them life and substance. Emanations from, from penumbras. It's there all the time. It's there the whole time. It's probably in the Fourth or Fifth Amendment right there. There's an emanation. Okay, an emanation is a scientific term for a gas made by radioactive decay. It also, me, also means an emission, and a uh, penumbra is a partial shadow of an eclipse. It, words don't matter. I'm telling you. It does not matter to this ideology, as we'll see. It does not matter at all. Okay, so uh, so so then in another ruling, in another ruling, um, we have in Massachusetts now now that the constitutional right to privacy is established, we have another ruling in a case in Massachusetts in which the Fourteenth Amendment is now evoked the Equal Protection Clause, which is only meant, they use that one, oh my goodness, the Fourteenth Amendment is only used to, it's, it's the Thirteenth and Fourteenth Amendment were the Civil War Amendments used to protect African Americans uh, after slavery, okay, but now it's just everyone gets anything all equally. And so since the married couple can have the right to contraceptives, now, non-married couples under the 14th Amendment can have the right to contraceptives. This was done in 1972. Guess what other case was going through the Supreme Court right about that time? Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade and the activist justice that did that. Okay, uh, also really important in, in Justice William Brennan uh, Jr.'s uh, decision, he says... If the right to privacy means anything, it is the right of the individual, married or single, to be free from unwarranted governmental intrusion into matters so fundamentally affecting a person as the decision whether to bear or beget a child. Contraceptives, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry if we're getting too deep for, for, for a church here, but contraceptives are about begetting a child. Why do you put that word bear in there? Okay, you think this isn't, you, 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 this is all intentional, all right? So Roe v. Wade, 1973, Justice Harry Blackman wrote the majority opinion. It's always a five to four vote, isn't it, on these kind of issues? And, and it's always, and, and you know, it always goes one way. It's, it's, it's always, look, if, if somebody's nominated to the Supreme Court like this Justice Blackman was by Richard Nixon as an originalist to restore the original intention of the Supreme Court, it's always someone like that that evolves to the other side. It's never the other way around. It's never an activist justice coming up there and saying, you know, imagine, uh, imagine Ginsburg turning around and saying, you know what? I think that, I think that we, should, we ought to be respecting the Constitution, don't you? You know? And, and doing it sincerely. It's always the other way around. 
And so this, uh, this uh, justice, Harry, Harry Blackman, by all accounts, was a very weak man, um, writes a decision, makes the decision, the five to four vote, and they push him out in front, obviously, because they want to take someone who's nominated as an originalist, of course. One of the activist justices could have wrote the opinion. He did it. Um, and he says in his decision that we, not, we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology at the judiciary at this point in the development of man's knowledge are not in a position to speculate on the answer. But what did he do? He just decided when life began. He just decided exactly when life began with that statement. See, relativism is always a self-canceling position. It always violates the law of non-contradiction. There are no moral absolutes. Well, that's a, morally, that's a statement about moral absolutes. That's an absolute statement. So is your statement absolutely true? The way that God sets up natural law, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Well, the secular, secular humanist goal was finally achieved. As a result of that case, 60 million, million little babies are no longer with us today. Never got a chance. Babies. You know, there's Christians that say it's not a kingdom issue. There's Christians that say, yeah, you know, we can't legislate morality. I'll tell you what, man. 60 million, 6 million Jews. We say the Christians were, you know, placid, evil, wicked, cared more about themselves and their comfort. How does Christianity in America let that happen? Did you see the, I mean, there had to have been Millions of pastors outside of the Supreme Court on that day. There had to have been millions. There had to have been, we needed to, we, we were watching this like a hawk the whole way. And we used the gen- <coughs> generic we, um, obviously. Right? They were all out there. You saw, you saw it on the, on the coverage. Christians storm Washington over it. No. Mm-mm. Not at all. 60 million. Million. Now, the... The non-believer, speaking as a Christian, the, non- the non-believer is already under judgment. It's already under judgment. What other judgment are you going to heap on top of? It's already separated from God. Who bears that responsibility in this kind of nation? If you see, when you see the things happening in the, in the Old Testament to the, to the Israelites, when you see how they strayed from God and reaped the curses of, Deuteron- of, the, of the second half of, well, the second three quarters of Deuteronomy 28, when you saw them commit idolatry and all that, Who did you say? Who was responsible? It was them. It's God's people in America. It's God's people in 60 million. Million. So, the Nazis massacred 6 million Jews in the Holocaust. Secular humanism and church complacency. Christian complacency in the United States of America have cost the lives of 60 million little babies because secular humanists hate babies. Sorry, but it's true. Okay? They hate life. They hate babies. Okay? Um, 
Which is the worst evil, Nazism or secular humanism? I, I don't know. I mean, you can't just judge it by the results of how many died. This is a kingdom issue. If anybody has a question on whether it's a kingdom issue, you can read from, from Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created him. That's out of the ESV. The important term here is image. What does it mean that God created man in his image? Um, what used to happen, in, if you look in the 10th century BC and on, um, is that when an emperor traveled into a foreign land, if it, say, say we'll, 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 use the, we'll use the example of, of, of Rome, and, and, and let's just say that Emperor Nero, okay, um, had a province way out in the Grecan Islands, okay? Um, what they would do is they would set up a statue of Nero. And what that statue did was designate rulership over that area, okay? In other words, he's there. That statue means he's there, okay? So political rulership, he's there. Political rulership, the emperor is there, in the foreign land, in the distant land. Religious rulership, too. Uh, what pagans used to do when they had a temple is they'd have images of the god in the temple all over the place. And so Genesis being uh, ancient cosmology, uh, the writer of Genesis is probably barring from that a little bit, but he's not saying that God is like the pagan gods. What he's saying is the earth is created and the image of God is man. And everything else is a counterfeit. And so, spiritually speaking, man is the sign of God's presence. So politically, spiritually speaking, holistically, every single way. Okay? Man in the image of God, man being created in the image of God, and this is the most hermeneutically correct way to look at the passage. It, all the other th things are implied in the image of God. You know, reasoning, will, volition, all, all those, all the, you get that with what I'm saying. You, you get all that. But the main hermeneutically correct principle, the way of looking at image, amago, uh, is that is God's rulership. God gives his rulership to man under the condition that man is obedient to God. Man is disobedient to God. Man loses his connection with God. Rulers forfeited, rulership is forfeited to Satan. Rulership is forfeited to Satan. And so Genesis 3, all the way until the end of Revelation, we have the rest of the story. Reclaimed rulership. Reclaimed rulership. Jesus, when he came, the whole story of Israel, the whole story of Israel is to demonstrate God's path to link man back with him and restore original intention, that man is made and reflects God. What does it say? What does Paul say about Jesus in Colossians? The image of the invisible God. He reflects God. Jesus reflected God where Adam failed. And 
we being in Christ, also reflect God, his rulership, his rulership. Now, the word politics simply is a fancy way of saying rulership, rulership. Now, in the, you get the argument, well, the early Christians didn't seek to change the government. Well, maybe, maybe not. Okay, you have a, a small minority group that was working from the ground up. What happened in 313 A.D.? Oh, the government changed. Started from less than 15 people with no power and no money except for that which comes from heaven. What would Paul say about a country that was finally founded under kingdom of God, rulership, Christian principles, including religious liberty, separation of powers in the government so that the religious liberty of the founders and sellers in the United States was not infringed upon. What would he say? What would he say? Absolutely. And then what would he say? Whose fault it would it be if, that wasn't kept, if the custody of that was not kept? If the custody of that wasn't kept. And we don't keep it by force. We can't keep it by earthly force. We have to change minds. We have to count on the spirit to change minds as we go out. But, but, the, but the Christian community has become so disengaged, so disengaged. We don't love God with all of our mind as a collective body. We don't. We, we say things like, well, you know, you can't, you can't legislate morality. The best thing to do is to go out and preach the gospel. Well, what is the gospel except that the kingdom of God is here? When Jesus came, that's what he said. He said the kingdom of God is here. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, what did he tell him? He said the kingdom is here. Now listen, there's only one way to get into the kingdom. You must be born again. Nicodemus had the wrong idea of what the kingdom meant. He was thinking specifically just for Israel, just at this time, restoration. He had a first century messianic hope for the kingdom. However, Jesus wanted to expand that hope to Israel being the hope for the world. The hope for the world and what needed to to be defeated. Sin, the reason why Israel was called into existence in Genesis 3, needed to be defeated. Okay, all, every time we talk about evil in the world, especially in a nation where we're the custodians of his promise and the way this nation has been set up, every time we talk about evil, we need to be confronting it head on, head on, head on. 60 million, that number, look, God can do great things, but there's a whole bunch of, uh, it's just a whole bunch of dead bones and ashes. There's a lot of dry bones. God can do great things, but it's going to take a lot. All right. So we have allowed secular humanism to be the dominant de facto religion and philosophy of the ruling class politicians, media, academia, uh, and entertainment strongholds that we have in this country. And we realize that we take responsibility for that. We identify as Christians that it is our fault that this happened. Not anybody else's fault. Okay, we're we're not leftist Christians. <laughs> it's our fault. All right, it happened under our, the generic Christians and Amer- Christians. It's our fault. Okay, so what is secular humanism? I think Francis Schaeffer describes it really well. It's a worldview based on the idea that final reality 
is impersonal matter or energy shaped into its present form by impersonal chance. Know who Francis Schaeffer is? Francis Schaeffer did a lot. He wrote a book called The Christian Manifesto. And it is the Christian Manifesto. It is a manifesto, a way of combating secular humanism. He did it in, I believe it's in 1981 that that was published. And he's given us, so I recommend everyone, there needs to be an, I, there needs to be an updated version, but he did a lot. And he, he laid the foundation for Christian role in civics, in, in, in the political area. His, his quote is that the lordship of Christ covers all areas of life. That it's not cut off from a certain uh, sliver that we allow the world to have. So, it is currently the de facto religion of the United States of America. When, when I say that, what I mean is that it is what it, the rulings, all the major rulings of the day fall on the side of the secular humanist. It always falls on the side of the secular humanist. When we say that, time, that the worldview is the idea that final reality is impersonal matter, what are the logical ramifications of that? Well, I'm going to take a look at that. Christian theism. This is the worldview that we hold. It's based on the idea that final reality is rooted in the existence of the creator God of the Bible revealed to humanity in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 15 through 16 says that, For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He, holds, he, he himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we have a colliding set of worldviews there, world there. If secular humanism is true, there are some ramifications that you're going to see. If Christian theism is true, then there are also some ramifications that you're going to see, which is the more logical position that we expect our countrymen to take, Christian theism or secular humanism. If secular humanism is true, man is a random animal of no more value than an octopus. Perhaps less if you listen to the environmentalists today. <laughs> Never hear about overpopulation of human beings. Okay? You hear about that all the time. You don't hear about overpopulation of, of polar bears, of, of dogs, of cats. Of, I don't know any... Well, perhaps pigs in Texas. There is a hog problem in Texas. They allow... <laughs> whatever. Okay. So man is a random animal. Truth is relative. There is no absolute moral truth, which is an absolute statement, right? Okay, so that's self-canceling. It violates the law of non-contradiction. When you approach somebody that is a secular humanist, they may not identify by that term, a relativist, they may not identify by that term. They may call themselves a free thinker. Um, ask them how relativism how you can hold relativism and not violate the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction says that two opposing views, two opposing things cannot be equally true. Two plus two cannot equal both five and four. It is either five or four. 
The law of non-contradiction has been something that is so ingrained in philosophy that you have to chuck out everything from before existentialism. Getting a little bit into the weeds here. You have to chuck out everything from the majority of all the major philosophers um, in existence that we have in, in the libraries to be able to hold to it. And I've never seen a good refutation of it. Um, freedom is an illusion. Now we're getting into a little bit more of the, 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 the practicality here. Freedom is illusion. Without truth, there is no freedom. It's an illusion. Without truth, your being free depends on the will of another man or woman or person or collection of persons. Is that freedom? When somebody that has a pen or a phone can write something that affects your life and says, deal with it? Is that freedom? Is that freedom? It's not freedom. It's not freedom at all. So freedom, you may feel free. You may be able to go to the movies. You may be able to go to the mall. You may be able to get a nice phone. You may be able to do certain things, but you're not truly free. You're not truly free to exercise your conscience. You're not truly free to be who God has called you to be. Freedom is an illusion if secular humanism is true. If secular humanism is true, power is greater than justice. Power is greater than justice. Because after all, what is justice? If there's no source to measure it by, if there's no plumb line to measure justice by, what is justice? But in a very abstract term. And if we can, by force do what the majority in power or whoever is in power, whether it is a minority or a majority, if we can by force implement utopia and lift humanity from the mud to the stars, isn't that worth more than antiquated notions of justice? Image is greater than character if secular humanism is true. It's image over character. It's what I look like over what I am. The, the word character, um, as Oz Guinness explains in a, in, a, in a real powerful talk, a Veritas, he gave it the Veritas Forum in Stanford, Oz Guinness. He explains this in a talk called A, uh, a Time for Truth. And he says that, that the, the word character is most, is, is greatest, is most great, is greatly, is greatly, is greatly exemplified <laughs> by Jesus' word hypocrite. I was trying to say it as he said it. Uh, it it's, it's, uh, it's powerfully exemplified by Jesus' word hypocrite. Uh, the word hypocrite is uh, the Greek word for actor. It's you're playing a part of something that you're not. Okay? That used to be a huge insult to be a hypocrite. Because character is what you are on the inside when nobody's looking. But if there's no moral standard to judge character by, and if it's the means justifies the ends and there's no real truth to be accountable to the outside of a collection of human opinions, then image is more important than character. Look, if God didn't exist, that's what I would hold. I would hold to these. If God, did, if God didn't exist, I wouldn't be in here talking to you the, from the other side. I'd be talking to you from this side. All right? Um, 
If secular humanism is true, the king is law. And you can take that word king and move government in, whoever's in, in, in power. The king is law. Law comes, it's dictated from the top down, and the top down is just another human being or a collection of human beings, just as fallible as you are. Isn't it scary that a group of lawyers with black robes, more partisan now today than ever, get to make decisions for 300 million Americans? Isn't that scary? The king is law. Since there's nothing above the king, well, what he says goes, what she says go, what they say go, goes. The state is the one to give the rights. The king, the throne, you grovel at the feet of man to do what you need to do, to open your business, to worship, to raise your kids the way you want to raise your kids, to define marriage the way you define marriage. You better come to man, hat in hand, man. Not God, if secular humanism is true. The king is law. Government is the highest authority. There's no one else to appeal to. The capital G is government. And the state is more valuable than the individual because after all, all you are is a collection of molecules formed together by time and chance. So together, maybe you can be something. Together, maybe you can do something that's lasting. But if it takes the deaths of, and the suffering and the misery of some individuals, if it takes liberty to be taken away from some individuals, well, so be it. So be it. The state is greater than the individual. Okay? If Christian theism is true, man is a special creation. Hold on. You know, let, me, let me go back and explain something else. Look, if secular humanism is true, you can see it in governments all over the world throughout, the, especially the last hundred years. Statist, socialist, communist regimes all apply to that list of eight things right there. They all do. You want to see it? Look at Pol Pot. Look at Mao. Look at Stalin. Hitler to some degree, though he had a lot of weird other things worked in there. Nationalist socialism. All right. If Christian theism is true, man is a special creation. Okay, there is intrinsic value in man. All right. Truth is absolute. It's not relative. There is a standard by which we know things are morally right or morally wrong. Now, since we live in a world that's racked by evil, there are sometimes only two wrong choices, it seems like. Okay? You don't let them get away with that when they say, okay, well, you have option A here, you steal to feed your, your kids or your kids die. Or, it, it, which one if, you know, you can't break a moral law or, or, or whatever. Don't let, don't let the secular humanists get away with that. All right? If truth is absolute, we're talking about use a transcendent example. It is absolutely true at all times, that the murder of a little infant is wrong. It is evil. It is true that that is the case. And it is, it is true if every single person in the world decided it was false, it would still be true. Does that statement resonate in your minds? 
That statement resonates in everybody's mind. It's a natural law. Here's the little secret, Romans 1. It's a natural law. Everyone has it. Now you can deny it, you can stuff it, but everybody has it. People know certain things are wrong and people know other things are right. Why is it better to love and to sacrifice than to cheat your neighbor if, if Darwinism, if, if, if naturalism is the right way to go? If, 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 that's the, if that is the correct way to go, why do we value somebody giving up their life for the benefit of another? It goes against everything that naturalism teaches. Okay? So we know that truth is absolute. That's another characteristic that is true if Christian theism is true. Freedom is real because there's a basis for freedom. Our freedom comes from God. Our freedom comes from God. Our liberty comes from God. The Declaration of Independence says that all men are created with the, with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is the truth. Now, freedom may be stomped. It may be taken away, but not in a way that's consistent with Christian theism. You can't have Christian theism and no freedom. You can't. You can't have Christian theism and no freedom to practice other religions that aren't even Christian. Christian theism provides for the freedom of non-Christians. Okay? Okay, if Christian theism is true, then justice is greater than power. Why didn't God crush Satan? Why didn't God just erase humanity and squash sin right when it happened and start over? He's God. Matter, energy, space, and time. From nothing. Ex nihilo. God said, there it was. The universe expands at a rate that's more precise than one part in 10 to the 180th power. There's 10 to the 80 atoms in the entire physical universe. 10 to the 80 atoms in the entire physical universe. 80 zeros behind the number 10. Expansion rate of the universe alone. More precise than one part in 10 to the 180th power. You Dial that knob one direction or another, no stars form, no stars form, no heavy elements, no heavy elements, no you. Powerful God. Powerful God. Why didn't he just, okay. You messed up. Lights off. Lights on over here. New universe, new creation. Why didn't he do that? Because justice, his character, his character dictated the fact that this is the way that he's going to do it. And it cost God everything. His plan of redemption cost him everything. It cost him himself. It cost him his son. Jesus was human. God humiliated at the hands of man. Instead of Crushing and using power, God chose to suffer the most brutal and disgusting form of humiliation. Because if Christian theism is true, justice is greater than power. Justice over power. Now, as you read down, you can, you can imagine, I, I sometimes, in, in giving a talk like this, I imagine the audience flipped. And if it was just secular humanists, oh, that would be great. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I imagine them seeing those points and saying, gosh, I, yeah, that's, 
that's kind of what I want. That's kind of what I feel. I feel justice is more important than power. The big cause of the secular humanist, more, lest we demonize them, one of their big causes is social justice, which is just another word for redistribution of wealth and empowering the government. But to them, the government's God. They want to help people. Where do they get that from? Where do they get that from? Get that from God. Misguided. Misguided. But talk to them about this. What's greater, power or justice? Why? Secular humanism is true. Which is greater? Christian theism is true. Under my worldview, don't I have a more rational basis for asserting justice over power because of the example of what God did? Our God, the Christian God did? All right. If Christian theism is true, image is inferior to character. It's character over image. Character over image. Okay, where politicians today are uh, just concerned with how they look to their, to, their, to their voters, how they look to their donors, um, selling out every chance that they get, trying to get us to, you know, as a community, as a Christian community, to, uh, to throw in with them. And as soon as they get to Washington, you know, they're, they're, they're cutting deals even before the, whole, before the campaign. You look at what's that? so darn frustrating. So frustrating. Man. I'm sorry. Um, you know, but if Christian theism is true, if, they, if, they're, you know, if they're holding to Christian faith, if we have Christian, devout Christians in the seats of authority, then character over image. Who doesn't want character in, their, in, in, the, in the people we send to Washington? They're not our leaders, okay? We're their leaders. We're their leaders. They're our representatives, okay, which... I don't want to get too rabbit-trailed here, but whenever, whenever, whenever somebody tells you uh, that you know, we, we ought to submit to the authority, if they break out Romans 13, put it right back on them. Say, absolutely, the authority needs to be submitted to according to the rule of this land. Okay, We, the people, we the people are the governing authority, not them, not the ruling class. So yes, it needs to be submitted to. Come to my side, please. Help me out. <laughs> we need some help over here. There's 80 million evangelical Christians. Less than 25% of them vote in national elections. I don't know the number in, in, in a state and local. You can imagine. All right? Imagine that. Character being more important than image. What? Which person's going to disagree with that? Okay, if Christian theism is true, that's the case. The law is king. Number six, the law is king. Lex Rex. This was a famous concept that was brought about by a, uh, a Scotsman named Samuel Rutherford. He had a huge influence on, on, um, on John Locke, who in turn influenced Thomas Jefferson. And this statement, Lex Rex, means the law is king. It was revolutionary. It was a byproduct of the Reformation. The Reformation, which put God first, God, God's word over the authority of the church and the political figures. God, let's return to God's word. And so that created a political um, uh, ideology uh, in, in people like Samuel Rutherford, who said, no, 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 it's not the, that the king is law, it's the law is king. Lex, rex. Lex, law, rex, king. God gives the rights. God-given rights. The rights come from God. They're not given to you by government. 
Again, you, 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 you take the naturalist, you take the liberal, whatever, whatever title they want to give themselves, whatever, whatever they identify themselves as, and you say, gosh, if God doesn't exist, then my, my rights come from, come from a collection of people, right? And so do yours. Doesn't that stink? Do you feel that's the way it should be deep in your heart? You ask them, it's a very experiential form of apologetics. You ask them, don't worry about what comes out of their mouth. Trust the Holy Spirit. Ask them. Ask them. It has a, it, it has a profound effect. It has a profound, trust the natural law that God has placed in every single individual out there. All of them are just, well, how are we better? In some way, did we receive the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden we grew a conscience? Well, well, wait a second. It's wrong to shoot somebody in the head for no reason. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that person has a right to life and that right didn't come from a person. It came from God. Everyone knows that. It's wrong to do certain things. God is the highest authority, not the government. It's God. Good thing is, God is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He knows everything. He should be the highest authority. Look at some of these politicians. I was going to play a clip. I was going to play a clip. And my inner Pastor John Mink was like, you're not going to play that clip, man. Oh. (laughs) I'll uh, post it on the We Are Watchmen site. Um, Chael Sonnen, uh, one of my favorite MMA athletes, uh, has a little, like, five-minute, and he's, he's a riot. He's definitely not saved, but he, he's a riot. And, and what he, what he, uh, he did a little talk on, um, on, on how everybody in Congress basically was fooled by the fact that the WWE was actually not real, like, like wrestling, like professional wrestling. <laughs> Each state had an actual commission set up, all right? A commission set up to regulate wrestling. Like, like professional, because they're athletes, you know, not entertaining. They brought like, who is it, uh, Jim McMahon or what was his name? Oh, man, whatever. They brought the, uh, uh, the chairman of the WWE in front of a joint session of Congress, I think it was, and, and you know, testify, is, is this actual athletics, is this sport, or is this entertainment? So it's entertainment, guys. And they're like, oh, okay. That's the people. Okay, if God doesn't, look, okay, mysteriously these little commissions like withdraw and all of a sudden they just magically disappear. One of the only times I think in the history of the United States that a, a government agency like willfully withdrew itself. Um, so, but that's who has the authority. That's who has the authority. That's who has the authority. If God, if God isn't the highest authority, then it's man, Okay. State is less than the individual. That's the hardest one for them. That's the hardest one for them. Why is state less? Why is the individual greater than the state under Christian theism? Well, because the state itself is personless. It's not, how do you address the state? How do you take care of the needs of the state. This is what, this is what the, the, other, the, the opposite side is always trying to do. They're trying to build utopia. You can't. 
Central planning can't do it. These individuals, are so, their needs are so unique. We're, we're, we're soulless creatures as well as physical creatures. Each one needs to be treated like an individual for the state to function. And when individuals cease being greater than the state, here's the paradox, is the way God set it up, the state collapses. And it becomes some kind of authoritarian system where liberty doesn't exist, where freedom doesn't exist, where oppression is rampant. Tyranny. Tyranny, absolutely. Full-fledged tyranny when the state is over the individual. If the individual, each individual is so important to God. Each individual. God loves you more than the state. God cares about you more than the state. Okay? So, and the way the state, the the other side of that, the way the state is built up is when individual liberty is respected. When the individual is placed first, when the individual's needs are placed above the needs of the so-called collective, because who can speak on those anyway? Then the collective all of a sudden gets better. Then, it gets, then the state gets better. Then the state is more free. Then the state is free. There, there's no more free. There's either freedom or there's no freedom. There's either liberty or there's no liberty. So, Putting those columns next to each other, secular humanism and Christian theism, which one do you think that if we just took the titles off, if we just took the names and the titles off and presented those two together, which is an exercise that I would do, is try to, you know, you take the Christian language out of it and just put conceptually, which one do you think that 10 out of 10 people would choose? The, the Christian theism list. They would, and then you can flash those, those names back on on the second slide, and then you can defend. Then you better be prepared to defend it. But it's pretty easy. The way that God set it up, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to know every single thing. You, 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 can, you can defend it. And the things that you're not familiar with, the most important thing is to be humble. Be humble. Be willing to take a, to take a question. Say, you know what, I, I, I haven't... You know, I, I haven't researched that. I haven't looked into that. Um, I'd love the opportunity to find an answer for you, and I'd love to get your name, your number, and maybe we could talk about it over, you know, pizza. Look, a fat guy's talking about pizza. Um, you know, you, you use any time that somebody... T- if you're in a debate, if you're in a debate, especially in a, a, a debate in any kind of setting, but especially in a debate in, an, in a more personal setting, use it as an invitation. If, you, if somebody brings something up to you, you're talking with your... A local philosophy professor at the junior college or something like that, and they bring up some, you know, oh, you think that secular humanism started here? Well, it actually started here when this person, this person, and this person. What do you think about that? Instead of trying to freestyle off the top of your head, get your pen and pad out or your iPhone and say, well, you know, that's really interesting. I never heard of that. Let me take a look at that for you. You know what I mean? You mind? Hey, can we get together? You're real cool. You know, can, can we get together and can we talk about this a little bit more? You know, if you feel like you need to give them a parting shot, you, you give them another nugget on the way out or whatever. But you, you, you don't, you, you don't, you never just, you never provide a false witness. Apologetics, the enemy loves to discredit you 
by getting you to say something that's not gospel. Oh, yeah, well, he said that, so <laughs> everything else he said is untrue, too, which is a logical fallacy. Yeah. But anyway, the, the framers and the founders of our country were all unified on something called the Triangle of First Principles. Freedom requires virtue. You can't be free in a society that's not just. There is no freedom in an unjust society. Virtue requires faith. All the framers, all the founders knew this. Virtue requires faith. You can't be just without faith. You can't be just without faith. There cannot be a just, virtuous society built on faithlessness. Faith requires freedom. If you can't exercise your faith, if there's no freedom to exercise your faith, it can't be expressed in society. Show the triangle of first principles to those Christians that say we shouldn't be involved in the civic arena. To those that say, well, it needs to be back like it was in the first century when we're getting our heads chopped off. Okay, the world's a lot different today. A lot, we need to all be thrown in prison. Oh, yeah, that's great. The gospel's going real far in this country. You know, we need persecution in the churches. You hear this kind of talk I mean, coming from pulpits. It usually comes in the form of something like, uh, something like I'm, I'm, I'm not scared of what's going to happen. I'm not going to, I don't have to petition any politicians or get involved politically. I'm going to stand for truth. They can come get me. I'll be preaching in jail. Hallelujah. Without doing anything. Without doing anything to affect the process. I just preach the gospel, brother. No, you don't, because the gospel is the kingdom of God is here. And the gospel, as we saw, necessitated by, the, by our very created nature being made in the image of God is an issue of rulership. It's an issue of rulership. How do you demonstrate God's rulership in a country that's founded on God's law? Whose fault is it when the country that's founded on God's law no longer submits to God's rulership? It's the atheist's fault. Okay. Yeah. Now, how can we fix this? How can we fix this? There's a path that we can take. It's going to be long. It's going to be hard. One of the main things, one of those main strongholds uh, of thought that usually uh, attack us, and it definitely does me, is you're one person, you have very limited resources. How are you going to make a difference? doesn't matter what you know. How are you going to make a difference, Joe? What can you do? How can you... Ch- 300, 300 million you know, people in America... 60 million babies killed, $20 trillion in debt, $200 trillion in unfunded liability. There's not enough money, resources on the planet to cover out what we've said that we would pay. That's intentional, okay, because the borrower is servant to the lender. Um, Massive, just waves and waves of people coming into this country that we have no idea how to assimilate into Christian theism. That's intentional. What do I do as a person that goes to work and goes to, you know, look, here's the thing. You need to start thinking 
about yourself as a very important role, as, as, as a very important piece of the puzzle, of a huge, there's gonna be, I'm telling you, if this is gonna work, there's gonna be millions of us. There's gonna be millions of us on this mission. And so I lay out a plan. I lay out something that I would tell my group of seven, 10, 200, 2000, whoever was looking to me for what can I do to combat secular humanism? What can I do to restore righteousness in this nation? I lay out a plan. But if this plan was followed, it's not the only plan. There's a lot of other kind of people come up with a lot of different things. People of God have, have done a great job recently in addressing this in a lot of different ways. So I'm not saying this is the way it's going to happen, but this is the way I would share with my group. All right, number one, prayer. All right, Second Chronicles 7.14. Take a list of what's happening today. You can go on the Drudge Report. You can look. We, we need to pray for our nation. Rob says, Pastor Rob says, look, you know, if you can complain about it, you can pray about it. Okay? And I, I do a lot more complaining than praying. It's true. So I repent for that. Um, pray. Because what's facing us is not, we can't fix it on our own power. It's, it is. But you know what? It's God likes to take down Goliath. Who says America's done? Who says the Church of America's weak? You know, who says that, that the power of God, who says that America's served its purpose, has turned it back, it's time for judgment? Is that written somewhere? Even, even if that's the case, are we going to occupy till he comes? Are we watchmen? Have we be, been given eyes to see what's going on, a mouth to speak, ears to hear? Are we going to be held to account? God isn't going to say you as a, just a person in the world. He's going to say, I, I, I created you for a specific time, a specific place, a specific purpose. There are no mistakes. Okay? Here's your account of what you did right. And here's some stuff that really, you know, you could have done. What if he played, what if he went to the judgment seat of Christ as all believers do, 2 Corinthians 5, and just God played a, a, just a, a role of what, of what could have been done if you had just chose A instead of B or chose D instead of F or, or chose Z instead of Q and you know all these. Look, here's something that we can do. We need to demonstrate the absurdity. The absurdity. We need to make a mockery out of the philosophy of secular humanism. It needs down. It needs destroyed. It needs to be finished. Here's one way to do it. This is the moral law argument. Now, this is formed in a deductive way. The moral law argument, all the major arguments for the existence of God are, are formed through deductive reasoning. Okay, and deductive reasoning simply means premise plus premise equals conclusion. If you can prove that the premises of your argument are true, then the conclusion logically follows. It's different from inductive reasoning. I got three minutes left, so we'll just keep going. Um, premise one, there is no law without a lawgiver. Now, there, is, there are fancy ways to support that premise. The, the, most, the easiest way that I've found is to ask somebody in the reverse, is there a way to have actual law if it wasn't given by anybody? Could you imagine that happening? And that's usually the way I start the moral argument. I'm not like, here, here comes the moral law argument, premise one. There is no law without a lawgiver, because they're on their heels. So look, they're immediately, oh, yeah, there could be. Uh, yeah, what if, uh, what if uh, you know, no, okay? They be, there's a tactic to this. 
Ask them in the reverse. Could there be a law? Hey, 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 Michael, could there be a law without a lawgiver? What do you mean? No, of course not. What kind of law would that come? Okay, good. You've confirmed premise one for me. I'll move on to premise two. Okay? Premise two, there is a moral law. Whoa, wait a second here. What do you mean a moral law? There are certain things that are absolutely right, no matter the culture, the time, the place. There's things that are absolutely wrong, no matter the person, the culture, the time, the place. There's things that are wrong if everybody on the face of the earth said that they are right. And we talked about that a little bit. So you establish that. Use the big examples. Point to, as Guinness says, point to, the, point to the transcendent examples, the hugest ones. You can also do it in the positive instead of being so negative. Is there such thing as absolute beauty? You can use that. Is there such thing as, is there there's something that's so beautiful that everybody has to say that it's beautiful, that it's not a matter of opinion, that it just is beauty? Point to an example like that, okay? And then the conclusion will logically follow. Premise one plus premise two equals the conclusion. Therefore, there is a moral lawgiver. Secular humanism destroyed in 120 seconds. In 120 seconds. Now, there are debates that you can go on. This is not, I, the, the, this argument has been contested. It's been contested in public forums. Sam Harris uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens have come up with very elaborate ways to try to explain a collective morality. And I'm telling you, the more complicated it gets, the more in the weeds it gets, the more I almost like to, it's like you almost want to just take the Christian out of it, take the, 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 the believer in theism out of it and just let them talk. Because it is so counterintuitive to what we know to be true. And it depends on being very complex, very confusing to the point where you say, well, that could be right. We need to obey 1 Peter 3.15, be apologists, build ourselves up, watchman apologetics resources. Uh, we, must, we must spark an interest in God's word. 43% of those U.S. adults who consider themselves highly knowledgeable about the Bible, a Barna study, were able to name the first five books of the Bible. Highly knowledgeable. Check the books. Okay, what are the first five books? I have no idea. Okay. All right? So if there's no biblical literacy, it starts in the church and uh, biblical literacy. And then finally, dedicate to civic responsibility. Confront unchristian apathy in the political arena. Confront it. Care what you call, what arena you say it is, what 501c whatever you try to take from me, what amendments you try to ram through the uh, uh, through Congress when you have a bunch of secularists in power there, the Johnson Amendment. Gosh, I don't care what's there. We're going to use everything we have, even if it comes down to civil disobedience. Okay. Okay, to stand for God's truth in the political arena. If we just got another 10 percent of evangelicals to vote, we probably would be fine. Okay? Uh, support, you know, uh, there's, we have a wonderful elder in our church, David Lane, who's done the American Renewal Project, as the founder behind that. Get behind movements like that. Obviously, our senior pastor, Rob McCoy, wow, what a, what a blessing, running for city council now. Uh, lost a, was outspent, outmaneuvered, out everything, um, uh, by uh, uh, by the liberal uh, um, uh, candidate and um, 
and almost took a, a state assembly seat. Uh, that's the kind of thing we need. We need to be responsible in the political arena. We need to wake up the 80 million evangelical Christians. The only thing necessary for the, evil, the triumph of evil is for good, good men to do nothing. I'm done. Thank you for your time tonight. I appreciate you.